everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. My guest today is Jonathan Scudder, co-founder and VP of Identity Cloud at Fortrock, the leading consumer identity and access management platform for consumers, employees, and things. Originally founded in Norway, but now headquartered in San Francisco, Forge Rock is a global company with 700 employees, nine offices, and over a thousand customers, including names like BBC, Geico, BMW, Pearson, as well as governments like Norway, Canada, and Belgium, all in all securing billions of identities worldwide. Forge Rock has raised 230 million in venture funding and is planning to go IPO in the near future. So I think that's going to be a really interesting conversation. And I'm very happy to welcome Jonathan here today. Hi, Anita. So, Jonathan, I think it would be useful to start off by talking about what is consumer identity and access management and how does it differ from the traditional identity and access management that enterprises are so used to? Yeah, sure. So uh, I started working with this about 15, 16 years ago. And at that point, it was still very focused on employees. So you'd rock up to work, you've got dozens of systems you need to log into, you have to have access to them. Someone's given you that access, but it's it's about companies and employees, liability and, and and what you're connecting to do. And the focus was very much one of security, uh, making sure that people didn't have access to things they couldn't have access to. Now, that's still viable. That's still something that, that we need. But as we also know, the, uh, the last couple of decades have seen us be asked to register for pretty much every service out there. Uh, I've, I've certainly lost count of the number of places that I've got accounts uh, on, and you've seen proliferation of, uh, of password managers uh, to just try and you know keep track of this. So it's taken the need for identity for knowing who people are and what they have access to, uh, taken it away from primarily the workplace, and now it's a concern for all of us. And this is the, the customer uh, identity and access management is um, us interacting with the connected world that those companies we interact with, each and every one of them want to know who we are and have that need to, to identify people. So are they who they say they are? And you know, what are we going to let them do? Buy things, uh, sign up for things, apply for something. So that's really the foundation of this is taking it out of the business and into the wider world. Well, that's really interesting, Jonathan. But when I log on to a lot of different sites, I typically just use my Facebook login or my Google login. I actually think Facebook is my identity provider. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, it's a very interesting question because uh, I think that actually puts a finger on one of the challenges uh, of modern identity is who's really in control of your identity. And whilst it, you know, it may be convenient, I think a lot of people actually also ask those questions about, you know, should Facebook be the, the, the place that I think of as the holder of my identity? But to answer your question, this is part of how the technology has had to shift as well. Uh, so instead of thinking, uh, you know, Active Directory, uh, desktop systems, uh, internal networks, which is the, the the old world of IAM, consumer IAM is much more about things like federated identity, where uh, you're actually asking someone else 
is this person who they say they are. So it might be Facebook, it might be a partnership between an airline and a hotel, but you know, you want to give a seamless user journey between booking a flight and booking a hotel. Um, and so you want to transfer that kind of information. So this this gave rise to standards like SAML, OAuth2, OpenID Connect, uh, in order to facilitate the, the transfer of uh, information in a secure way about who people are. Um, so kind of very important SIAM technology. Okay, so let's just go back a little bit and maybe you can tell me how ForgeRock came to becoming a leader in the CIAM space because I know your origin was actually in the open source identity and access management solution from Sun, which Oracle acquired. So maybe you can give a really quick history on how you went from a very traditional enterprise identity story to now doing CIAM. Yeah, sure. Well, it's it's been a big part of my life for the last uh, you know ten and a half years now uh, since we started the company. Uh, it really did start with that idea that there's a problem out there to solve. Uh, Sun were doing a pretty reasonable uh, job of it and and had some great software, as you know. Oracle acquired Sun uh, back in 2009, 2010, and that really gave us the impetus to have another look at that and think: is is there uh, for someone to really try and knock this this one out of the park, uh, ta- tackle the problem head on, and also do it from the point of a specialist rather than um, you know, a kind of massive company trying to do a hundred different things. This gave uh, that. that first impetus. The open source angle, uh, having worked in Sun, which was the world's second largest contributor of open source software, uh, that that gave us a good uh, starting block. And then the last 10 and a half years, we've, uh, I think, rewritten the software about three times, uh, introduced um, several new products to the stack, um, and then followed the journey as well and pushed that journey, particularly in areas like uh, the Internet of Things and uh, user-managed access, uh, Mm. looking at data sovereignty and uh, who's really in control. So... Uh, it's been an awesome journey. Uh, but that, that start was recognizing that, that, you know, the world needs good solutions. We as consumers need good solutions. Uh, I, yeah. it, it's part of the trend that we're in, that yeah. we need to connect. And uh, I think we deserve to have good solutions for that. Yeah. I, I personally, as a consumer, I'm actually quite worried about all the different places that my identity is stored. And I feel like I have zero access over what people are storing about me and how that's being used. So you mentioned two words, which I don't know if I'm understanding it correctly, user-managed access and data sovereignty. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about, can your solution help consumers have more visibility and control over their identity of course. So these uh, these two things are quite closely related. One uh, about, in a way, the ownership of your, your identity. The other one is about the control of access to information about yourself. Uh, so you can probably view them as two different facets of, of the same problem. Where this comes from, I think, is uh, if we step back for a second, just think of uh, you know trends. We've had the industrial age, the information age. Uh, I remember being at a conference with a future researcher uh, who looked at these kind of mega trends and described us um, as being having moved forward from the age of, uh, of information uh, into the age of the individual that we uh, we no longer make, uh, make decisions based on collectives that we're a part of. Uh, we're always looking to actually expect individual treatment and have our own individual positions on things. I think you see that re- reflected in politics, in, in religion, in society in, in many ways. 
that also comes into the world of technology where uh, every site, every uh, company, government you, you interact with, then it's not just about broadcasting information. There's that individual aspect to it. And this has led to a situation where the the amount of information about individuals has never been higher and it's accelerating, uh, you know, even as we speak. Um, paradoxically, um, the, uh, the concern about privacy uh, is also way on the we we give our information away easier than we have done before but we're also more concerned about doing that that's the uh, the right. paradox and so this this nexus brings about these fundamental questions of you know who owns my data uh, and who decides um, where that data is shared and we see that come out in legislation like uh, gdpr well that data sovereignty is really that's one of those fundamental questions uh, can i decide where the authority for my identity is, and sorry, OpenID uh, did attempt a kind of open solution uh, for this, where you could actually say, you know, this place over here, they're the ones that I trust to hold my uh, my data. So if you need my data, you can go and get it from over there. There, there were reasons, I, I think, for that not being adopted more. Uh, but th there's also uh, an extension of that, the self-sovereign uh, identity, which is still, I think, emerging, but a really important step for us going forward. Mm -hmm. User managed access. I mean, one of the ways of explaining this is you, know, you, you end up in hospital for some reason, unfortunately, and you're, you're there. The hospital needs some information about you. And so you've got your patient journal, maybe, you know, stuff with your GP, your blood type, things like that. That's your data. Um, and in that situation at the moment, all of this whizzes around sensitive data about you and you have very little say in that. So right. whether the doctor has access to that is something that maybe the hospital have decided. Um, whether another doctor on a different ward who isn't treating you also has access to your data, you don't know. Uh, and so user managed access is a, a pioneering standard uh, developed uh, by a group uh, driven very much by Eve Mailer at, at Fordrock, really looking to provide a technological solution to how do you give the individual control of who gets access um, uh, to their data, kind of like the Google share button for documents, but, you know, standardized. So it could be any information you share. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So I just want to make sure I understand this correctly. So a CIAM solution, a consumer identity and access management solution that's being used by a company and organization like BBC or BMW or Pearson, for the organization itself, it allows their consumers to access the rights resources and store their identities with, with that organization. And then they also probably manages consent, which is required GDPR and other regulations. But it also has functionality that is more for the individual, for the consumer themselves to manage access to who has visibility or access to their data. Would that be an accurate statement? Uh, I think that's accurate. And uh, I'd maybe just add on that the, the kind of holy grail we're going for here is that win-win situation where, yeah. um, you know, what's good for the BBC and the, the users of the BBC is actually also good for uh, us as individuals. One of the challenges there is that if you don't have the software that makes that possible, then, you know, you have to make some hard trade-offs. And if it's a business that's making those trade-offs, then it's the business priorities that are probably going to be given most consideration. So actually removing the excuse of, well, we can't get that ideal situation. That's one of the things that we're really trying to do is, is to make sure that they've got the tools they need to provide both 
what they need from a business point of view, what, you know, a government needs from, for, uh, from their point of view, and actually align that uh, with what the citizens and what the customers uh, also need from their point of view. Things like self-service um, and allowing the, the user to have some choice as well in what's going on. Identity in itself is so fascinating right now with the digital explosion that's happening around us. So maybe you can take a step back and talk a little bit about what are the trends you and Forge Rock are seeing in the identity space that, that is going to impact both consumers as well as businesses going forward? Sure. Yeah. Let's see. There, there are several different big shifts going on. I think we've touched on a, a couple of them in terms of control. GDPR, of course, has already provided a big shift. Uh, so before GDPR, then uh, I think there was less of an incentive to in, uh, introduce certain control. Uh, and that's been very, very good for consumers, a really, really massive impact. I uh, don't think we can understate the role that GDPR has played in raising everyone's game. But, you know, in terms of where we're going, the Internet of Things is definitely something which uh, is uh, quite a game changer for this as well. When we talk about what uh, identity, uh, primarily we think about people. Uh, so, you know, uh, my identity, Identity at work, my identity at home, my relationship with a hotel chain, for example, and a partial identity that they, they see me through a rather small window. Don't know everything about my life, but there's an expression of my identity there. But you have a person at the centre of this. There's there's always been the idea of service accounts as well, the, um, the, the non-human uh, things that need to access other systems. Um, but the Internet of Things takes this from being, you know, a small number to actually being far more numerous than the number of people. Uh, I mean, as an example, uh, we work with several car manufacturers and a typical car may have 200 different chips uh, inside wow. it. Now, each of those could be a component that has its own identity, goes through its own life cycle, um, needs to uh, also have its own uh, idea of what else it can access and, uh, and reach out to. Same with you know, agriculture, uh, temperature sensor, you know, humidity, uh, soil acidity. Uh, in, in every corner of society then uh, we, we see this explosion of, uh, of things admittedly I think you know it's still uh, still an area that's developing but this drives uh, scale on identity it's going to add um, you know another couple of zeros onto the end of, uh, of the number of identities we have to manage and the complexity of how do we keep an overview of that how do we make mm. it easy secure and, uh, and maintain that picture of who's talking to who. Um, that's that's definitely one of the uh, additional trends that we see. Thinking about the consumer market uh, and trends there, I think fraud is a really interesting uh, interesting piece and password ones. Passwords have become a pet hate. I, I, a great uh, comedy sketch, uh, I think it's an old one the other day, but about the evolution of the password and how um, you know everyone had that one password they used for everything and then said, no, we need to solve this by making the password a bit longer and then capitalizing it. And so we all put a capital at the first letter of the password. And then you, know, you add a special character and we all added the exclamation mark onto the end. And there is a certain truth in that. A password is isn't a great mechanism. Uh, if if you have too many well, post-it notes, we, we know what the, uh, the the flaws are. So how do you get beyond that? Uh, and passwordless, the, the idea that we can actually recognize who you are, if you first have established that trust, then we can use other techniques and, and you know, recognize when you're coming in from a familiar place, using a familiar device, um, using familiar techniques and doing familiar things, then all of this actually 
can give us more certainty than that there was someone who happened to type in the right password. But we don't know if that was right. actually you or someone else. Um, and that's the evolution of passwordless is, is seeing that go from something which is possible in theory to being a, a, a very workable solution. Fraud detection is in, in its need. Uh, we know uh, things like identity theft, someone else getting hold of your identity is actually a really frightening thought these days. I certainly find that yeah. something I, I can't, <laughs> can't be blasé about. Yeah. Um, spending your money and signing up for things, saying things on your behalf that you wouldn't otherwise have said, um, or just preventing you from uh, doing what you need to do. There's all really quite uh, nasty outcomes that, that we have to avoid. Uh, and the entry point, in you know the authentication, uh, the the initial establishment of uh, of trust or the authorization of what you can do, that's very much about your actions. But there's also the the periodic look at you know just is this user doing things that they normally would do? Are they behaving in ways mm-hmm. that they uh, that they would behave in? And is there anything else going on? that we could maybe connect together to this, like seeing a large group of users doing exactly the same actions uh, or uh, or someone going completely out of character. And it could be, you know, down to things like Impossible Traveller, uh, you know, seeing that you access from uh, from New York uh, one moment and then 17 minutes later, you're accessing from China. I mean, okay, it could be a VPN, could be something else, but... But this is this is zero trust because that's what whole zero trust is about is sort of figuring out the the access based on the user, the device, the location, looking at um, the behaviors to figure out what access they should have. Yes, yeah, and so we have uh, a lot of these tools. And yeah, uh, at a Gartner conference um, a few years ago, I, I remember one of the keynotes there was uh, about how we've got these tools, but. In practice, there are too many of them to, to actually use. Mm. If, if you can set up all of these, uh, you know, rules and bring them all into play, it becomes unmanageable for the humans who are making sure that it all makes sense together. So the, uh, it's really, I think, the advent again of machine learning and artificial intelligence is uh, is what takes that to the next level. And that the anomaly detection doesn't have to be specified in terms of a set of rules that humans thought up and said, you can't do this, you can't do that, or that's suspicious. But actually looking at over time based on, on learning um, what the norms are for your organization and for your group of users and being able to analyze that on the fly for, uh, for normal, that, that's what's coming into uh, in, in this sector. I see. Okay, cool. So break down for me the landscape of the CIM providers. I assume this is actually being tackled by a number of different categories of players. It's probably the traditional IAM vendors that are now adding this, but then they're also businesses that traditionally have own customer data, like CRM companies, perhaps ERP companies that that store a lot of customer data that maybe are adding consumer identity and access management as a benefit and a functionality. What is the landscape of the consumer identity and access management solution look like? I'll give you my take on this. Obviously, you'll get different answers from, from different people. I view this uh, as being roughly plotted on, on two axes. You've got the idea of scale and the idea of, um, of breadth of functionality. If if you look at, uh, I mean, we mentioned Sun earlier on, Sun were acquired by Oracle. There, there are other very well-established IT companies that were doing this, um, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So uh, IBM, Oracle, CA, uh, Nobel uh, in their time. Right. And you know, some of them are, are still doing identity. 
I think as a, a trend, then that's that's declining. Uh, that also uh, that's generally they're very quite capable products in terms of a feature set. Maybe not so up to date, but there's there's a breadth of things because that was aimed at the inside uh, identities. It was the employees right. of the company. And uh, there are fairly complex requirements uh, around uh, hooking into different networks, but never really volume. Uh, I mean, you talk about thousands of employees, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, um, but not really too much more than that. So that that thought may be the slowest moving, but the uh, historically the biggest part of the market, but the trends are, are, are all elsewhere. You also have still staying at low scale, but near, uh, onto a narrow set of features. That's where you have companies like Okta. Uh, so they provide uh, a fairly straightforward, narrow solution to a single problem. Uh, and that, again, is focused mainly towards the employees um, of small and medium-sized companies rather than large companies. So we're talking about you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of, of identities typically in that sector. And, uh, you know, that's a, a contested space. You've got Microsoft, so who I think are uh, playing in that area. Uh, you see three, Microsoft 365. Um, it's yep. so ubiquitous. Uh, of course, there's a strong play there for Microsoft, thinking they've already got many of the identities of employees at most companies. So, you know, it's a, a small leap there for them. Uh, if we move up into the uh, the quadrant, uh, looking at higher scale. So now we're talking cyan, uh, really more than the, the traditional IAN. And uh, here you find the the vendors, uh, again, more on uh, narrower uh, use cases like uh, Ping, for example, who um, they have made some acquisitions and, uh, and broadened, but by and large, they, they started off with federation and have, have had more point solutions there. Or Zero is another one. So they can operate at scale, but tend to, uh, tend to be on the the narrow path of these are the problems that, that we solve. Uh, and by the way, all of these are, are valid and vibrant parts of the market. Um, where Fordrop comes in and where we sit really quite alone uh, in, in the segment that we dominate is the high-scale and broad feature set. So, uh, And we find this to be something very much about uh, user journeys and the, the kind of know your customer. If you get to a scale not of thousands or hundreds of thousands, but tens of millions or even hundreds of millions, then uh, that, that introduces completely new scale requirements. But it also means that we're dealing with such a big segment of society that you can't think about just one way to do things. Uh, your users are going to have very different approaches to things and very different needs. Some of them will be very tech savvy, others won't. And language uh, is going to be an issue. Uh, and you know, using local systems, Facebook, I mean, yeah, it's quite usual with the login Facebook, but that doesn't apply in every country. Uh, if you're a global company, you've got tens of millions or hundreds of millions of, of end users. You need to be flexible, incredibly flexible, if you want to provide good user journeys. And mm -hmm. that's, that's really where uh, we're focused, is providing that full set that, that top level of, uh, of scale. Uh, yeah. And that's how we bring our software. I mean, I'm, I'm very proud to be part of a company that, you know, really protects, uh, we uh, count over 2 billion identities that uh, are managed through Fordrop software. So about a billion individual people. Um, and that, that gives real reach to it. If we can make those journeys that little bit simpler, that little bit safer for the individual to do that, that, that feels like a good day at work. Nice. Very nice. So, Tell me now, as a company, what was your main channel for customer acquisition and growth in the beginning stages? 
And then as you grew, has that changed? Yeah, it, it's a really, really interesting question because it it absolutely has changed. And I'm sure all startups have got these sort of stories as well about, you know, when there were five people, then they operated in an utterly different way than they do when they're 500. Uh, that definitely applies to us as well. So the first couple of years of our company, I think we knew already most of the customers that we acquired in that uh, that time. They were uh, companies that we knew had uh, had these challenges, um, and you know, in some cases, we had existing relationships. That that was you know in the kind of known world for for that initial period. Interestingly, hiring as well was also uh, you know very much within that immediate network. Then we entered into this second phase where you know having an open source uh, aspect to our strategy was really. It both makes you feel good. Uh, I think that there's, uh, you know, something, uh, something really holds uh, the bottom of this. Got a lot of time for uh, the the open source way of thinking, but uh, it also meant that our software was actually often being picked up by customers before we knew about it, which is, you know, really quite amazing uh, to to think that it, it's just the the software itself creating that sort of opportunity. And we're not the only company to be in uh, that situation. I and uh, I've spoken to several other growing companies who've uh, talked about similar journeys, but, uh, you know, really, really amazing to see. But we moved forward from there into a, a very technical uh, approach would connect typically with uh, the developers, with the system admins, with the uh, the technologists who had been empowered to go out and find solutions that, that might be good fits. And that's mm. where we tended to connect. And were they the same people that traditionally owned IAM? So the same group of people in enterprise that also were looking at solutions for the consumer? Not necessarily. At, at least they wouldn't okay. be the people who formerly owned those areas. They they might be acting within it. It, it did tend to come, though, more from the security side. Um, if you think back, yeah, 10 years yeah. ago, I think there was there was still that dimension to it. But the real shift was in, in that going from, you know, security to actually being, you know, more of a marketing thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, we found ourselves yeah. talking more to uh, executives and more to marketing uh, and sales and our customer side. Because uh, identity had gone from being the thing that bolted the doors, the protective uh, security trend, as we talked about earlier, to being something that grew the top line of the company. If you know your customers, if you've got the flexibility right. to, uh, to uh, identify them, to treat them well, to make good decisions about what to do based on who that person actually is, then uh, you know it's it's a benefit to the company, and that became uh, something that would grow the top line and uh, and have that coming out of a different place. So today. I think we still, you know, connect to all these levels, but we've seen a journey going up from providing a technical solution to really fulfilling uh, a need for businesses to grow, not just to, to be protected. Obviously, the pandemic must have played a big part in changing strategy and, and your actions at Forge Rock. Could you tell me a little bit about how the pandemic has impacted how you go to market and and what you're doing as a company? Uh, of course, yeah. I I don't know that any company could claim they they haven't been affected by this. And uh, you know, seeing certainly different sectors how they've had to change what they're doing. I feel that you know our sector, the whole tech sector, has been lucky in in a certain regard in that they've been able to continue doing business maybe in in similar ways, and that has been uh, our 
our experience as well in terms of go-to-market. One of our concerns was, you know, even if we're operational, because we were a global company, we're not you know, the, the biggest company in the world, about 700 people, but spread over a large number of different countries, time zones, and, and more than half our workforce were actually working from home even before coronavirus. So in terms of how we worked internally, it felt like we, we had already, you know, a, a very good culture uh, and tool set around this. But in terms of reaching out to customers, having our side in order isn't enough. You also need the, uh, you know, the customer you're working with to still be operating, to still have their need and be reaching out. Uh, and that's that's probably where we've seen the uh, the shift. Not so much in in how we interact with our customers, but we've seen a shift in what our customers are doing. And you know, in some cases, the mm. you know massive shift uh, education and. Uh, and um, similar sectors who have the opportunity to move more things into the digital arena, then we've definitely seen them using you know, our software and service uh, to be able to make that shift and continue to do business. Where are you seeing the most demand coming from because of the pandemic? Like since the pandemic, you, you mentioned education. What other areas are you seeing? I've got a good answer to that question. Uh, to be honest, we're seeing things you know very busy everywhere and, and with Okay. Well, well, let me uh, turn the discussion a little bit internally mm-hmm. to the company itself. I know that Forge Rock is really big mm-hmm. on culture and I wanted to spend a few minutes to get some insights from you on how you go about bring, building a strong culture. This is something really, really important to me personally and uh, I think to, uh, to everyone in the company as well. There's a question that uh, I've posed to a number of our employees over the years. You know, what makes companies great? And we've actually used that in, in getting some of that feedback loop going. And the things that make companies great, I mean, of course, there's the execution and the level of success of the company. They, those things tend to come up. You know, people, people, people is the first, second and third that that really gets pointed out. Things like, you know, working alongside people you respect uh, in an environment where there's diversity of thought, uh, respect to people's opinions, uh, a collaborative uh, approach. These these are all things that I, I think the majority of people really do appreciate. And how you get there is not necessarily through policy uh, and practices. There's There's got to be something deeper, something that's based on values and culture. Like we had uh, a couple of things at the beginning that, that started of us off in a very good uh, good position, and that was viewing the uh, the group of people as really what the company was about. If you get them, uh, an awesome group of people together, then you know they'll overcome the obstacle. Uh, we're, we're bound to see those challenges, but the right group of people working together for each other that that would make the difference. And so having that thought from day one, uh, I think, was uh, super important. The other thing was. Uh, about the international dimension here. So we started off in Norway. Uh, we we expanded, had offices in Grenoble, France, uh, Bristol, and UK, and Vancouver, Washington. Um, they were early locations for us and still remain large locations for us as well. Um, but it meant that we had people, you know, different languages, different norms, different approaches. And that that gave us also some of that strength that it's it's not a case mm. of absorbing one line of thought, but having to face every day that people approach things differently. And that's a part of our DNA rather than a new challenge that we found. So basically it's the founders, their value, their emphasis on culture and then hiring and making sure that you're getting people 
that have a similar value system. There's no question that it takes yeah. something to keep it like that as well. If I, I've learned uh, about a phenomenon called uh, isomorphism, uh, which is the tendency of companies as they grow to start to look more and more like other large companies. And, you know, people describe that in various ways. Uh, I've certainly met a lot of people who describe that kind of journey and that kind of concern as well as you grow that you lose touch with your roots so along the way it's definitely different when you've got you know 5 10 15 20 50 people and you start looking at hundreds and suddenly you realize that you don't know uh, who everyone is or you know their names but maybe not so much about how, uh, how they work and, and their background and this means that you have to look at doing things differently so uh, you know decentralization uh, i think becomes very important that it's it's not all about a nexus where everything happens and people feel on the fringe, but everyone feeling that they are an important part in that journey. And then looking at things like a, a listening initiative that we ran for uh, a number of years before we uh, really established a people department. They uh, take groups of, uh, of 10 employees in each region that we had uh, every couple of quarters and we'd sit down and and just you know have one of those you know blameless you know nothing attributed back to individuals but one of those just honest conversations about how we're we doing on this you know what makes uh, what makes companies great and how are we doing in terms of being a great company if you were the ceo for a day what what would be the couple of things that you would really want to shine the light on and then from that taking that back into feedback making sure that the the, the company Company and the company's leadership is aware of where we are on those things and able to uh, to, mm. to address the areas where you know, we we need to do more. We need to do less. that. That's been something constant, and I've described that uh, before as akin to gardening. That you know you've planted the right seeds. They're they're in a good position. There's lots of sunlight. It should all go well. But you know there could be weeds. You've still got to uh, water it. it. It takes that tending, uh, and that really is something that we all have to do as well. Um, what is your planning? Planning we, we, we do approach annually. If I talk within the product organization and how we plan our products and services, mm -hmm. we follow uh, something called seasons. It's a concept that we've introduced. It's, um, you know, quarters, but not necessarily calendar quarters, and could also be uh, longer mm -hmm. or shorter as, uh, as demands need. That ability to stay agile, um, to plan, but not too far ahead, because we, we know that you know, further ahead mm -hmm. than that, then your plans may not be worth uh, worth too much. But strong direction and then concrete planning for a, a season, which could be three, four, five months long. Uh, that's that's okay. Mm. I see. Interesting. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about IPO. I know it's somewhere in your cards. Why did you even decide to go the IPO route? Why not a strategic exit or an acquisition? The IPO route seems like it's a lot of work. You have all these pressures of being a public company. What are some of the factors you considered? This has been really a goal for a long time, whilst our purpose is to help people simply and safely access the connected world. And we succeed in that by getting this broad reach. So growth and expansion have been important to us to really make a go of that. And in the early days of the company, I mean, who really starts the company thinking this is going to be massive? Uh, I think for us, then that's been the ambition all along is to think not just about creating a kind of a corporate entity that will earn some money and, and tick along and be acquired by someone else and, and absorbed in something, but rather thinking, you know, 
20, 30, 40 years from now, what impact could we have had? How would you notice that this company ever existed? And that's why I, I think looking at really how big could that ambition be? And when you consider identity and how important it is to have that feeling of independence almost, that you're not tied to a particular side, you don't have any ulterior motives. We are just trying to provide good, safe, simple, secure access for people. That's our mission. Then that seems like a mission that's got legs and that could didn't have to end at an early stage. But we thought this could stand on its own two legs, you know, remain independent, grow, be strong, and be a factor, an independent factor in the market. And that was part of the thinking very early. Go big or go home. I, I won't say that there was never a moment where it's like, okay, it's tough. There, there are always difficult moments. But yeah. by and large, it's it's been an awesome journey. We just haven't seen the reason to limit the thinking about where this could yeah. go. Basically, the reason why you're thinking IPO is because you think the market is big enough and, and at the right time to actually value a solution like what Forge Rock is doing. Is that what you would say? Yes, and that's also, I, I think, what we're seeing confirmed in, in terms of the growth of the sector. The growth of our company is the, I think, fastest growing of the, the IAM players. Okay. You can go IPO in, in US, you can go IPO in, in the UK. There's so many different markets. What are some of the factors other founders and CEOs should consider when they're thinking about which market to IPO in? Yeah, first of all, this is the first time <laughs> I, I've uh, got a company I've started that's got to this stage, so I, I may not be the best person to give advice, but I'll happily share my thoughts at least. But there is a difference. I've spent a little bit of time uh, over the years just looking at where could this journey go, and as a part of that, we started off as a Norwegian company. We have our largest presence in Bristol in the UK uh, to this day today, and then we're headquartered in the US. So there's three different uh, jurisdictions, and there are a number of uh, different stock exchanges in in those locations. Uh, the sense of scale is uh, is definitely something which uh, does differentiate. If you look at the market cap of uh, tech companies in uh, in each area, then it may may not be good to um, be significantly different from other companies in the market. That means maybe you get uh, compared to companies which aren't really too comparable with yourself. Um, mm -hmm. That's that's one of the line. The the other one I think that I, I have heard come up is about the nature of the capital and the, the, the various exchanges. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, the uh, London Stock Exchange, uh, I've heard described themselves as, as having more patient capital uh, in terms of expectations of uh, you know what happens, which um, mm -hmm. roadblocks you may hit, whereas other markets may may move faster yeah mm. and you know I, I guess a factor not so much for me but for for others is familiarity um, if you know as a if you have a VC investing and they they are very familiar with um, you know Nasdaq or something else uh, I, I think they there's lots of people who who have established patterns here as well and uh, familiarity and, and knowledge uh, of the different uh, different options there have you made a decision on where you would you would IPO? And is there a general timeline that you've shared publicly? I think things have been uh, said at various times, but I know it's also um, a bit of a cliche for a company to say, we're going to IPO soon. So I think you might need to wait for the bell. But uh, to put it this way, we feel we're in a very strong position. Uh, couldn't really be happy with where we are at the moment and uh, really quite bullish about uh, about the future. What are you, What is your run rate now? What's your ARR revenues that you have right now? Oh, well, we passed 100 million, I think, two years ago. So it's uh, and have grown significantly uh, each year. So 
Okay. If you think about, you know, zero to 1 million, zero to 10 million, then 10 to your 50 million, maybe 50 to 100, which was the hardest? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good question. I think, you know, I, honestly, that first dollar is um, it, definitely a magical <laughs> one, right? The moment of validation where it's like, I, I don't know, you've got something and someone actually does want it and, uh, you know, is, is willing to pay for it. There's there's something special about that. Um, so I would say those, uh, you know, that, that early stage is uh, feels special. Uh, I think the validation of... Uh, seeing that start to achieve a bit more scale as well. It's not just those three companies that you managed to persuade, and uh, uh, but yeah. you know you, you start to see the ability to scale up. But that was actually really, I, I think, post hundred million, where you, you see that it becomes so much more about repeatability and mm. you know really having good good systems. And good systems mm. follow from having a good culture, a good approach to, mm. you know, caring about the customer mm. and the dialogue and, you know, really wanting to do the best and, and viewing customers as partners where their success is our success and um, and, and vice versa. That that all needs to uh, to work as a system and not, uh, you know, not, not be those moments of interjection where, you, you know, you kind of save the day. You know, yeah, yeah. Lower numbers. Yeah. Okay, so I'm almost nearing the end of end of the podcast. Quick question on if you go public, what does your future look like? What are you going to do with the the money raise? Where do you want to take Fort Rock? What's next? Yeah, uh, magic question. Uh, what what's next? We uh, the horizon is still out there. This is not a, a, a finished area. Uh, if you think back to those trends, then those trends are, are very vibrant, and we know there are new trends out there. The, the future is not going to be less concerned about privacy. Um, and people are also more complex than they were. I mean, uh, you know, there's more mobility. Uh, if you ask someone where they come from, uh, then that's not necessarily a, an easy question to answer. So their idea of, uh, you know, what's home or what they answer on uh, in a questionnaire about their background, all of these things, you know, they, they spill over into the digital world as well. Um, so it's not enough to just have, you know, a name, uh, email address, a password, a phone number, and you know, that's the identity. The the real drive, I think, in, in that and where, you know, we, we could see that going is in expansion and bringing those great tools out to more uh, of the customers and enabling them to get that win-win with their, their end users. That's that's where I think we, we feel that we're a best-kept secret. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure most people in the UK, for example, have actually used our software, even though they may not know it. Maybe they were voting on the Strictly Come Dancing final, and you don't realize that Ford Rock is helping to, uh, to keep your, uh, your, your account secure and your information secure in that process. It's, it's very much that kind of back-office thing, but we feel that there are great solutions. We need to bring that out to, uh, to more and put those good tools in the hand of, uh, of more companies and, and governments around the world. Nice. Okay. Maybe some light questions to end the podcast. What do you do outside of work? Ah, right. Awesome. Well, uh, I lived in Norway for 15 years. Um, my wife is Norwegian and I fell in love with the great outdoors there. So uh, unfortunately, coronavirus means travel is, is not uh, not particularly the done thing at the moment. Uh, I do love getting out into the uh, the, the great outdoors and, uh, you know, my kind of vacation time getting up into the mountains uh, where we have a small log cabin as far away from technology as you can get, actually. No, no running water or electricity. Um, 
complete de-stress. Absolutely, with the family, and, uh, just putting <laughs> the sun on your face and, and, and fishing. Either that or, or with a camera in hand. Uh, oh, so do you do you take pictures? Do, You're a photographer? I, uh, yes, yeah. I have uh, started to measure photography in the, the number of exposures uh, that I have, but yeah, very, uh, very interested in, in that as a visual art. And um, I, I guess how you don't just record something with a camera. Uh, it's not, I mean, that's one way of using it, obviously, but how you can also construct something, uh, try and convey a certain emotion or, or wow. message. Where can I see some of these photos? Uh, I do have portfolio. Um, I, I'm not sure it's, it's up to it, but jonathanscudder.com is uh, way. Okay, well, I'm going to look it up. What about books? Are there any books that you've read that has made an impact on you as a person and, and what you're doing today? Oh, uh, it would be more likely to be fiction, actually. I, I've always been an avid reader, but I'm not quite okay, one for great. the uh, self-help uh, airport books, unfortunately. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, interesting question. Uh, it would be really hard to say. I mean, I I love uh, I love books that redefine what reality is, where you're you're not constrained by the bounds of this is life, mm. this is reality. I mean, there, there's some great books there as well, but it's uh, really the ones that that you know have you spend uh, some of that and theorize about things. You know, the 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 what if things like. Yeah. Uh, Terry Pratchett's uh, Long Earth series is uh, something which, mm. you know, explores parallel universes and, um, you know, it's uh, uh, just a way of stretching the, the brain and, and remembering that things don't have to be the way they are and uh, reality is something that yeah. we can shape and, uh, and change, certainly think about in different ways. Yeah, I would struggle to pinpoint one book though. Okay, I'll add the Terry Pratchett one to to the podcast transcript. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really enjoyed our conversation and um, really delighted that you're working on such an important problem around identity management and making sure that consumers' identity and privacy are protected in the right way. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Anissa.